God, those communists are amazing. All right. Welcome back to The Intervention, a podcast about British and American imperialism. I'm Nick with my co-host Steve, and I'll be the main host this week. Um, and we're really lucky to be joined tonight by Mike from Turn Leftist. Mike, you want to introduce yourself, maybe talk a bit about your podcast and what you guys got going on over there? Yeah, thank you. Hey, everyone. I'm Mike. He, him. I'm starting up this podcast. Yeah, it's just another anti-imperialist, uh, Marxist, communist podcast. And uh, we have accompanying meme pages for all the hosts. So we're just a bunch of very online leftists trying to do some uh, very online dialogue about Marxism. Yeah, and... Definitely listen to the podcast. I think in a lot of ways, you guys inspired me, you know, because it's just fun to go out and talk like normal dudes who are, you know, trying to learn and get educated on topics and try to do some agitprop and education in like the fucking Imperial core. So absolutely. No, I mean, that's good to hear because I listened to yours for a couple months now and I guess for the time you've been doing it and uh, it sounds very similar to ours. I can see the inspiration there and I'm, I'm enjoying it. And yeah, I mean, obviously we are those kind of people like there's something wrong with us, right? We have something in our brains that makes us obsessed with this politics that we have no fucking control over, but we still have this obsession where we need to tell all these people about our takes because they are the objectively right takes, and we have to change people's minds. So that's what we're here to do. We have to. Because once you get into it, you see it everywhere, and it's just, it's like a cancer, and you can't, it takes you can't do right. anything but. So, uh, all right, so let's get into it then. This week, we're going to talk about Russia in 1918. And specifically, the U.S. intervention, well, the U.S. and allied intervention in the burgeoning socialist state. And I want to make like really clear up front that this specific intervention wasn't solely driven by the U.S. as nearly all of the allied imperialist powers played a part in it. However, because I'm an American, that's what we're going to focus on. Additionally, I think it's critical to focus on the U.S. specifically here for several other important reasons. And I think, you know, just some things to think about as we're going through this tonight. So one, the intervention here would have huge consequences on the relationship between the dominant superpowers of the globe in the future in the USSR and the US. Two, I think it highlights the deceptive nature of US foreign policy proclamations when actually squared with real actions on the ground and behind the scenes machinations. And fortunately, that trend has been discontinued, right? Um, <laughs> relatedly, you know, we can look into some of the money behind the scenes that kind of influence motives and actions and things like that. And four, and this is kind of related to the second point, but it really lays the foundation for a pillar of U.S. imperialism moving forward from this point, and that's anti-Bolshevism and more generally anti-communism, right? And finally, I think it might be a useful framework to analyze the relationship between the U.S. state and those it has kind of executing and doing its bidding in terms of the work on the ground. So you guys got any thoughts on that? I mean, looking at it from the British perspective, what I read from, well you know, pretty liberal, probably publications, they try to justify it at first, at least as Britain's fear that, you know, the Bolsheviks were signing a, or Lenin was signing a treaty with the Germans. So they tried to at first say that, you know, it was all due to Britain's fear that that would free up Germany's troops to fight in the Western front. But then when you, you know, you dig a little deeper, obviously there was a lot of oil and, uh, and grain concerns for Britain. And basically after the war ended, Typically in Britain, especially after the First and Second World War, there's a pretty big left movement by the people. And that was definitely the case in Britain as well. So this intervention was really unpopular, but it was driven by, of course, Winston Churchill, who was the war secretary at the time. So, Just a recurring villain in our podcast, in history yeah. in general. Yeah, that's what's great about this. Though. When I was reading up all the, the notes that you sent me, it's like, 
once again, just another very familiar pattern, very familiar story, just being executed with all the same details just over and over again. It's like, and that's what I guess is so frustrating about it, like we were saying before, where we have this need to tell everyone about these things. It's like, when you see it, you just can't stop seeing this over and over again. And it, I don't know, it is crazy making to think that other people are not understanding everything through this lens. No, yeah. And like, you could read something really simple, like Washington Bullets by Vijay Prashad, which lays out kind of the framework for the pattern that these things follow all the time. And it's, you know, it's a 150 page book, like take the time and read it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's all I want to say. But anyway, so just getting back to the story, I think it's always important. It's something that we try to do just before we even get into it, take some time to actually lay the historical and material groundwork for this intervention into Russia in 1918. So as everyone knows, a pretty big thing happened in November of 1917. Papa Lenin came home for good in April. He did have some help from the Kaiser and the Bolsheviks completed the greatest revolution in history to that point. And I'm willing to have a scholarly discussion on the Chinese revolution versus the Bolshevik in terms of historical import, but you know, maybe that's for another time. So I say that it was completed because in fact, the 1917 revolution truly began back in February when Tsar Nicholas II was forced to abdicate the throne and a liberal government led by Alexander Kerensky took charge. To go even further back, you could say the revolution actually began slowly lurching forward in 1905 when the Tsarist regime was forced to establish the Duma, you know, a legislative body, and that was all due to popular pressure from below. In any case, you know, it's a long, extensive history, and we don't have time to get into the entirety of it. Um, Mike Duncan's on, like, episode 100, and I think he's just getting done now, so. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize he's, like, gonna, he's gonna end his show, right? Once he, like, finishes this current season or series, right? Yeah, I think this is like it for revolutions is what he's been saying. So, well, good, because he just started to get cringe. So fuck off. <laughs> Lib cringe, man. I think he'll come up a little bit because I did use him for this podcast, like in terms of reference, because he does, you know, he's a good historian. He's a good liberal historian, I think. You know what I mean? But, yeah. you know, you have to dive into some of the details. But I think we could talk about like what he presents versus what we'll get into here later as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll just I kind of want to just say off the bat. I was excited to do this specifically because I listen to Mike Duncan, listen to his podcast for years, and usually he does an okay job. Obviously, he's not going to be like favorable to a bunch of Marxists usually, but like he is usually pretty balanced and explains what mistakes were made. And he's usually pretty good. But the recent episodes about this time period were just so heavy handed and just so blatantly biased. It just. It was unexpected for me. Like, I was really disappointed to hear it. And I'm like, I just don't understand why. Like, out of all the things that he's covered over the years, why now on this particular, unless this is all going to start setting up the stage for the current conflicts in Ukraine, and that's why he's avoiding taking that kind of even balanced stance on it, then it would make sense. But like... But that's the thing. It's like, what's going on today is related to this because it's related to the USSR and, you know, relations between the USSR and the U.S., right, and how this kind of colored all that. And ultimately, all the history connects together, you know. So I don't know what his motivations are. Maybe he can look at something like the French Revolution from more of a distance and like a safer distance and something like Mm -hmm. this. It's just surprising to me that, you know, someone like him, he took a deep dive into, maybe not a deep dive, but he at least got an understanding of like Marxism and Leninism and what they were saying and the historical conditions. And it's like, I just don't know how you can't square what happened with that theory and what they were actually doing, you know? Just but what I started off with saying I was excited to do this, it's because 
when I was listening to that, I was like, oh, fuck. Now I need to do an episode in response to Mike Duncan's bullshit here. You know, just like spouting fucking lib, almost CIA sounding talking points. And I just knew that I wasn't going to get around to it myself. So I'm super glad that you did the hard work and I can just like sit back and have story time. I love it. Thanks, man. I think I think it's going to be a multi-parter. So yeah, that's we'll, fine with me. We'll have a lot of swipes at him. But, uh, you know, as we said, the revolution actually began in February of that year, 1917. And as you can imagine, given what happens later in the year, the provisional government that was implemented was not a very stable government at all. There were numerous political factions kind of vying for power from monarchists who sought to reinstate the czar to liberals pushing for westernization and capitalism to socialists who held like that orthodox, quote unquote, Marxist line that Russia would need to go through a capitalist stage, you know, a state stage before socialism. And then there were the communists who wanted to actually change their relations to production and the function of the state immediately. And those last ones are the Bolsheviks. So, like we said, I think there's a number of reasons as to why the Kerensky government, as the provisional government was known, could not consolidate power and establish a firm grip on the Russian state. But I think one of the largest had to be the failure to end Russia's engagement in World War I. The Russian people had been absolutely devastated by the war, as the inept Tsar Nicholas had sent millions of ill-equipped peasants to their death on the Eastern Front. Well, Germany's Eastern Front. The Soviet demographer Boris Erlanis later estimated that Russian losses exceeded 3.3 million in the war, about 1.8 million military deaths and 1.5 million civilians, which was absolutely staggering. Casualties across the board were staggering on a world scale in World War I. You know, that was a war the likes of which the world had never seen. But I think it's interesting to kind of juxtapose the civilian casualties suffered in Russia versus, you know, somewhere like France and Germany. Like, it wasn't really comparable. Like, they had nowhere near a million civilian casualties. And I hate to trivialize that, but I think it's important because it kind of shows the state of development in Russia versus the other nations in Western Europe. Most of these civilian casualties were almost certainly the result of starvation, disease, just symptoms of total war, which were exacerbated by a deeply repressive and autocratic and theocratic regime in the Romanov dynasty. While Russia had been forced to industrialize somewhat under a reluctant czar by liberal-ish reformers such as Peter Stolopin and Sergei Vita, by the outbreak of World War I, it still remained a deeply feudal society in many ways. Many peasant villages remained cut off from supply lines, advanced medical care, and were largely non-mechanized, meaning the effects of war were felt extremely acutely. And it's important to note here that the investment for the infrastructure development that was completed under the likes of Vita did not come from nowhere. Foreign investment from France, Britain, America played a dominating role. They all had their share in it. But from an American perspective, one of the key players historically was J.P. Morgan. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. Yeah, that's some crazy shit. Yeah, I think one of the things the British wanted to protect as well was like their investment in the Trans-Siberian Railway, right? I mean, that was a big part of it. It's a big part of this whole story, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, just to go back to the Bolsheviks a little bit. In the uh, political tumult of the time, really the only party which still appeared capable of harnessing the anti-war fury of the people had been the Bolsheviks. And when it came to an anti-war plank, no organized political party had remained as steadfast as they had through the years. Lenin and the Bolshevik leadership, really from the outbreak of the war, had decried World War I as an imperialist war. Basically, a war in which the urban working class and rural peasants would be sent to the front to kill each other for their capitalist or monarchical rulers, as said rulers sought to redivide an already completely colonized world. So Lenin, along with the likes of Rosa Luxemburg and Eugene Debs, a good American, 
um, had stood in front of the Second Communist International and argued for a policy of revolutionary defeatism. What that means is that the socialist and communist parties of the world should fight for the defeat of their own oppressive governments rather than aid and abet in the slaughter of working class people on both sides of the conflict. Slaughter that was really only for profits and reactionary nationalism on the side of the imperialist powers. But truly, in a world historical tragedy, the Second International failed to heed Lenin and company, and the most powerful socialist party in the world at that time, the German Social Democratic Party, or SPD, led by that coward, renegade, and social chauvinist Karl Kautsky, voted to approve war credits to the Kaiser. So this is why I always hear such terrible shit about Kautsky. Yeah. He's... <laughs> I remember reading Imperialism for the first time and being like, who is this dude that Lenin hates so much? <laughs> <laughs> yep. It even sounds like Vouch. Oh, man. Speaking of Vouch, did you see some of these horrendous takes from him lately? No. No, I don't. I never, I never do. <laughs> he was comparing wing revolutionaries in Latin America to fascists. Cool. He's like, we should be support. He literally said we should be supporting, you know, not them, but good things like NATO. I mean, how does anyone think that he is not like bought and paid for at this point? How do you not think that this dude is compromised? I have kind of thought about like some kind of canary and I don't know how it would work yet, but like you have to have some kind of signal, right? Like you have to be able to signal to your fans without flat out telling them like, look, the CIA is going to kill someone close to me if I don't start saying that NATO is actually cool and we should support it. You know what I mean? Do we have to like have something that we can do so we can signal for that? Because I think that's a real thing that can happen probably happened to Vouch. Like, oh, I hope that's why he's doing it. Like, Otherwise, he truly believed in nothing or any. you know what I mean? So, yeah. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. What's going to be my canary uh, thing when they come knocking on the door? Yeah, like... Oh, man. But anyway, so despite the ultimate outbreak of the war, the Bolsheviks refused to alter their position. And before and after the Tsar abdicated, the Bolsheviks continued to hammer home that message of ending the war to save the people. After losing over 3 million people, it's hard not to see why the party would be popular in that context. Not only that, but the Bolsheviks offered a vision for society after the war that appealed to the masses, especially the urban proletariat. Fully embracing the Soviets or workers' councils that had formed within Russian society due to political organization by the working class, the Bolsheviks also held fast to their line of, quote, all power to the Soviets. So bluntly, the Bolsheviks in the tradition of Marx and Engels wanted to wrest authority over the economy and the state, which was wielded at the time by the capitalists and the czarists, and place it into the hands of the true movers of society, the workers, and also end the war that was killing them. Based. In any case, in the decisive months between February and October, Kerensky and the Russian government, under undeniable pressure from the Allies, Wilson had actually extended millions in credit mostly via private finance for armaments and supplies to the provisional government in an attempt to keep the Eastern Front alive. But this led to a truly disastrous decision. Instead of removing Russia from the war as the people wanted, the Kerensky government decided to make one more push to repel the Germans off their Western Front. This is known as the infamous July Offensive, and in short, it hastened the complete collapse of the Russian war effort and dramatically affected their bargaining position later. The Kerensky government, having squandered its measure of authentic support following the departure of the Romanovs, really lost all legitimacy at this point. And after that, Lenin and the Bolsheviks really began to mobilize in earnest. It's important to note, I think, that Lenin had returned to Russia with the assistance of the Germans who identified him correctly as a threat to the Russian war effort. And so, you know, they did assist him in returning home, Finland Station and all that kind of stuff, with the hopes that he would serve as a vehicle for ending the war. 
he would do that indeed, but it wasn't to benefit the Germans or himself. It was to benefit the working class in both Russia and the whole Eastern Front. and was completely in line, as we said, with his stance on the war all along. This was even long before the prospect of a true socialist revolution in Russia seemed achievable. I think Lenin was quoted some years before as saying he didn't think that he would see the revolution happen in his lifetime. So I'm just trying to say that this guy was ideologically consistent when it came to this thing. But I just point that out because obviously it would be utilized in anti-Bolshevik propaganda that him, Trotsky, all these guys were German agents, essentially. Of course, yeah. But it was bullshit. So the dream of socialist revolution actually became a distinct possibility after the July offensive, and the Bolsheviks did not squander the opportunity. Under the direction of Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin, among many others, the Bolsheviks swept into power in October with the workers of Petrograd in the vanguard and immediately set about implementing, by necessity as we'll see, war communism. And this is all within the existing conditions of the former Russian Empire at that historical moment. True to their word, the Bolsheviks worked to end Russia's participation in the World War. After some jockeying with the central powers on terms of surrender, a short period of no war, no peace, the Soviets were forced to accept terms of the punitive Treaty of Brest-Litovsk as the Germans prepared yet another offensive. In March of 1918, the Russians were finally and officially out of the war. Yeah, you know, I kind of wanted to just sidetrack again about fucking Mike Duncan. <laughs> yeah. I was even talking about it with people in the Discord. You listen to these episodes and he's talking about how you said that Lenin and Trotsky would get accused of being German agents or whatever just because they were aided in one particular aspect by Germans at one particular point. And it's like, even Mike Duncan in his episodes where he's saying that Stalin or whoever was super heavy-handed had just killed all these people for no fucking good reason, he then in the same episode admits that the people they were killing were guilty of the exact collusion with the American government that they were accused of doing. And he's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, they did it, but like... <sighs> he ends up in this place where he's just supporting the status quo, right? Yeah. So, like, again, you can be critical and everything like that, and certainly mistakes are made, but history tells us that upheavals on the scale, they're going to be violent. There's really no way to say that nicely. I don't, you know what I mean? Speaking of the status quo supporters, I don't know if you listened to the most recent episode of uh, the D program, but that's another very similar yeah, bro, far left podcast that I love. And their episode on the ideology of no ideology. It's fucking brilliant. Great shit. Yeah. No, in centrism, like you either have no ideology or you're just a closeted fascist. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, it's hilarious seeing liberals right now. I don't know if they're just not aware that the far right are openly infiltrating every level of state and local governments, like buying up guns, uh, openly talking about their plans to do like another January 6th and, you know, purposely infiltrating like the police and military, of course, but that's always been happening. Right. I mean, they already are the police and military. I don't understand if liberals are just ignoring that stuff or... They just don't care. I think they're just mostly not politically involved. But I do want to know, like, what are their plans? I want to just ask, like, a bunch of fucking libs, like, hey, what are you going to do, like, when they do this in 2024 and they do it successfully this time because they planned a little better? It took them two hours last time. They planned a little bit better this time. And now they're going to go and start putting people, anyone who registered Democrat, anyone who ever flew a rainbow flag is going to get labeled a groomer. And we're all going to get put in the camps that are still holding the kids right now because Biden didn't <laughs> didn't get them out. Like, uh, what, like, what do you guys what, what's everybody doing? Like, I don't know. They're going to vote, Mike. They're going to vote. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Nick, you and I talk about this. I mean, like part of it, I think, is like intentional ignorance. Right. That is people just don't want to hear. They don't want to pay attention. But I think as well, the majority of liberals are probably upper 
upper middle class or, or upper class and contribute pretty heavily to capital and probably think, well, I'll be fine even if this shit happens. So, I mean, I, I just don't think that like a soft fascism would bother half these people. I mean, we're, we're basically there already. So that's kind of what I wanted to get at to end that is just I think a lot more of them are going to side with the fascists than, yeah. than would admit right now. Right. Yeah, because they're not on the side of the oppressed. You know, and this is tied into American exceptionalism and, you know, this, I think, specific labor aristocracy that we have here in the imperial core. But like, again, the white liberals, you know, they'll take down their um, in this house yard signs and yeah. know, forget about it. So, yep. No, but it's it's a good point that just supporting the status quo when shit is happening and, you know, you're on kind of like this tipping point where it's going to go one way or the other. It's always just going to default into that position of ultimately being on the side of reactionaries. And I think you need to look at it that way when you're analyzing history as well. Pick a fucking side. So with all that said, they're out of the war, but the suffering, unfortunately, for the Russian people was not quite over as a civil war almost immediately broke out between the socialist reds and the reactionary whites. Now, I think it's important to not characterize either side as necessarily monolithic in terms of their ideologies. It wasn't like czarist versus communist completely. The whites were a diverse mix of monarchists, capitalists, and just straight-up reactionary opportunists that were united at least in their opposition to the Bolsheviks and socialism. People really that stood out to lose as the social and governmental situation changed. And on the other side, many fought for the Reds that, maybe early on, weren't necessarily ideologically committed communists, but nevertheless supported the Bolshevik Revolution, or they would come to. In fact, many politically disengaged Russian citizens, or even those peasants committed to this idea of the Tsar as God's representative on Earth, would be pushed into the arms of the Bolsheviks by the sheer brutality of the whites, but you know we'll get to more on that later. Anyway, as we've said, as the Bolsheviks were taking power, the war was very much still going on in Europe, and a big fear of the Allies was that now that Russia was out of the war, Germany and the Central Powers would be able to focus all of their manpower on the Western Front. America, for its part, had officially declared back in April of 1917, but would not actually participate in any major battles until later in that year, due to mobilization, time training, etc. But, you know, I guess less than a year of fighting still grants you the title of back-to-back -back World War champs on trucker hats. Oh, my God, dude. That shit drives me fucking... Like, okay, what happened after that? How'd the next one go? Or the one after that? Yeah, the Red Army won World War II anyway, so... Yeah. <laughs> Got no claim to those trucker hats. But in any case, all that is to say that there was a real fear on a military level that a concentrated German offensive would be able to finally repel a battered and exhausted mainly French and British with their colonial subjects that they threw into the trenches from Africa there too would be finally pushed out on that front before the Johnny-come-lately Americans would make their way across the pond. It's worth noting here that American capital support for the Allies began well before their official military entry, a process which would be replicated in World War II. One of the things I read said that, you know, private investment had basically loaned out on the order of like $1.8 billion to the Allies in the years leading up. So America was never truly neutral, right, mm -hmm. in World War I. Facing a concentrated German offensive and the ending of the Russian war effort, the Entente sought means to bolster their forces. And hampering the communists in the process wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing for them either. And this is where we get to the Czechoslovak Legion. And this is about where I took a break from Mike Duncan after this point. Um, <laughs> the Legion was a disciplined group of around 70,000 ethnic Czechs and Slovaks who had fought alongside the Russian army for the purpose of defeating the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which their people were currently ruled by. Essentially, it was liberation for their countries via the defeat of the imperial power lording over them. But in any case, after the Bolsheviks ended the war, this contingent remained on the former Eastern Front and were not quite ready to give up the fight. 
The Legion was viewed at once by the Bolsheviks as a threat to Russia's stability and as a potential asset by the Allies. Czechoslovaks, for their part, as I said, did want independence for their nations and thought this could be achieved by aiding the Allies, who would look favorably on anything that they could offer to them in the post-war order. However, because the Eastern Front was no more, they would have to join the Allied armies on the Western Front in France. The issue was the entire army of the Central Powers stood between them and that point. So the plan was to go east first and hit the Western Front, trekking across Siberia to Vladivostok, on through the Pacific, through America, and then on to France. At least that was the proclaimed plan. And the Bolsheviks agreed to allow the Legion to pass at first, and the Legion slowly and in stages began making their way across the vast expanse of Siberia via the Trans-Siberian Railway. I'm going to make like a trans flag joke, but I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing either on that, man. No, um, but anyway, it was not long before hostilities broke out between the Legion and Bolshevik forces in the various towns and depots along the railway. One sparking incident in particular involved the Legion and released German and Austrian prisoners of war. It's a long story, but Trotsky was soon giving the Red Army orders to disarm and arrest the Legionnaires. However, the organization of the Legion, I mean, this was a tightly knit fighting unit that had just had years of experience fighting on the Eastern Front. So that coupled with the fact that the Red Army was still kind of in a state of disarray following the revolution, they hadn't really put the Red Army together a couple months later yet. This allowed them to functionally control the railway from Samara to Irkutsk. And that's a span of about 2,500 miles by fall of 1918. So essentially, they're controlling this swath of Siberia just for geographically disinclined Americans. Um, it's about the size of America from the East Coast to the West Coast. They had also taken Vladivostok, which is the eastern terminus of the railway, and a key Pacific port. The control of the railways and their desire to see the war continue for their own purposes formed the basis for an early and somewhat natural alliance with the Whites, who would soon be led by Admiral Alexander Kolchak. Kolchak would go on to become the supreme ruler of the Russian state, or, you know, the rebel state, via coup d'etat later in that year with the support of the Allies, and we'll get more into that later. A couple things of interest to note here that after the first collapse of the war effort following the abdication of the Tsar, Kolchak had actually visited America to discuss American achievements and the Russian naval effort and what went wrong. Also, interestingly, he had received permission by the British command to fight with them on the Mesopotamian front, but was diverted ultimately to Manchuria, where his path eventually led him to becoming the head of the Russian puppet state in Siberia. I just thought his ties to America and Britain were worth mentioning there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so we're finally going to get to the narrative a little bit here, um, but it's going to focus on the account of America's Siberian expedition from 1918 to 1920. And this was written by the commanding officer of the American Expeditionary Force, William Graves. In fact, this book can actually be found on Marxist.org. And I only became aware of that fact after I'd purchased it. So it was at least some good retrospective indication that it would be valuable in understanding this intervention from the left. And just to kind of put Graves or, you know, give my thoughts on Graves off the bat, my reading of him is that he was a disciplined soldier of the American War Department in the sense that he was dead set on executing instructions as he had read them, even if that ran counter to American imperial and capital interests. I think he was also truly ignorant of America's imperial intentions, like he couldn't conceive of America as an empire, despite having fought in the Filipino-American War. You know, American exceptionalism is a hell of a drug, and so is Orientalism. He kind of comes off like a Smedley Butler character almost, but I guess maybe like a little dumber. <laughs> like this was kind of more more indoctrinated. It's like, bro, how can you be the bulldog and not realize that you are doing what you're doing? Like, how do you not realize? Yeah, that was one thing throughout this whole book that like 
he kept repeating, like, basically, I'm just following my orders as I read them, as he's seeing all the stuff that we'll get into kind of happen around him. I mean, in a lot of the lefty accounts that I was able to find, he is broadly viewed as like one of the only good people from the allied side in this whole kind of story. But I thought it was so interesting because, again, this is an American general on the ground, like telling us what was going on, despite a lot of position from the uh, actual arms of the empire and things like that. But anyway, I also want to acknowledge that as we're learning more doing this pod, when I'm referencing imperialism here, I'm referencing the beginnings of America's overseas and global empire. To someone like Graves, I think the concept of genocide of indigenous people, enslavement of native and then African peoples, like the entire concept of settler colonialism on the North American continent would have been extremely foreign to Graves. He wouldn't have it at any chance of registering with him. Product of his time, whatever you want to say. But in any case, I do think he was affected by the human suffering he saw in Siberia by the brutal reactionaries leading the white army. So he gets credit there. Furthermore, I think his decision-making did prevent much direct engagement between the Red Army and the American soldiers. And this really stood in stark contrast to what was occurring in Archangel with the Polar Bear Expedition, which was basically the arm of this intervention on the opposite side of Russia. I think that one's going to have to wait for another time. But in any case, I think we can pass final judgment on the man at the end of the story. Because now it's time to get into America and the Allied response to the October Revolution, finally. The bastard-in-chief at the time was Woodrow Wilson, who, as we all should know, was a racist piece of shit. He was in an interesting position at the time politically because when he wasn't preoccupied with segregating the federal buildings in D.C., his main focus was crafting the foundations for the League of Nations, and he needed support from a Republican-dominated Senate at the time to ensure American commitment. One thing I always like about Wilson, just um, tangentially, is how much he appreciated that movie Birth of a Nation. Can you hear about that? Was he the one that showed it in the White House? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Gino. Anyway, the League of Nations is a U.S.-led effort. You know, it would need, obviously, the U.S.'s involvement to ultimately succeed, and Republicans at the time continued to resist overseas engagement. Wanting to keep political opponents at home somewhat mollified, but simultaneously keep up support for his imperial allies in France, Britain, and Japan— Wilson issued an aid memoir through the State Department, and this was a vaguely worded document in which Graves' instructions were embedded. Essentially, Graves was to head to Siberia with a detachment of American troops for the purpose of ensuring the Czechoslovak legions passage through Vladivostok and on to France, while not becoming involved militarily in the Civil War, unless the protection of the legion and control of the railway required it. Now, because we're talking about Americans here, we of course have to be skeptical of every announced intention. As we'll show, the Czechs, in fact, did not need much assistance in controlling the railway by that time, but it was a good smokescreen. What was very critical was fighting Bolshevism and protecting American business interests in the region. So let's talk about that a little bit. Because American industry's investment in Russia was significant. In 1917, U.S. companies held nearly $660 million in investments in the country, a sum which had grown from about $26.5 million in 1913. And that timeline is kind of coincidental with the... Uh, kind of the span of World War One, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, William Appleman Williams, the historian, noted that American companies, Baldwin and U.S. Steel, had essentially made the Trans-Siberian Railway. Sounds like with the likes of British investment as well. International Harvester dominated the agricultural machinery market and had historically requested the Tsar's assistance in strike-breaking at the Russian facility that they had built there. And it should come to no one's surprise that J.P. Morgan is going to come up here. 
the financial behemoth's ties to Russia went back to well before the war. When Industrial Harvester was founded in 1902, four of its 14 board members were from J.P. Morgan, and it wasn't limited to this. From a book I found online today that I wish I had more time to read before we got into this, it's called House of Morgan and its Russian Investments. We get a quote. The House of Morgan participated in the credit arrangements for involving American business in direct trade with Russia. Morgan had control of International Harvester, and he maintained a monopolistic control of the large American life insurance companies that were investing heavily in Russia. As early as 1900, Russian securities were offered to Americans. American insurance companies and the American public invested almost $25 million in Vladikavkaze, I don't know, mm. in Southeastern Railway bonds that promised a 4% return at maturity. This was guaranteed by the Tsar government. So this goes back to the liberal reformer days with uh, American investment there. So funny, man. It's like, I can't even imagine that like the U.S. would just arm and fund some far right groups to protect business interests. Like, I can't even imagine them doing that. Yeah. They stopped all these practices, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, did you get into any of the, there's tons of resources in Siberia. And I know the British were mining there as well. You know, there's iron, manganese, copper, gold, pyrite, lead, aluminium, nickel. I mean, there's all kinds of shit there. So, you know, that was a big driving force for Britain as well. Yeah, no, I don't have any statistics, but just empirically, it was there, right, along with it. And control of the railway, I mean, you're talking about something that spans essentially an entire continent through Russia and parts of China that terminates in, you know, one of the most important Pacific ports, right? So. Even the export of goods, which some of the sources I found talk about, like the vast quantity, I think they said that American goods of every type could be found in Russia. So, I mean, you can imagine that the Trans-Siberian Railway was key from both the extraction point of view of resources for imperial powers and also, you know, to get goods in to sell to the Russians. So, yeah, infrastructure was huge. I mean, it's interesting you talk about Wilson and, you know, a little more heavy handed. The opinion in Britain was definitely kind of split because... David Lloyd George was a prime minister and he was negotiating with Lenin to form trade deals with him rather than he did not want to intervene. I mean, there's a quote by him. He says, it is of no concern to the British government what socialist experiment or what form of government the Bolsheviks were trying to establish in Russia. So he was, you know, directly opposing Churchill, whereas Churchill said, Bolshevism is not a political thought, but a disease. And then later he said, civilization is being completely extinguished over gigantic areas while Bolsheviks hop and caper like troops of ferocious baboons amid the ruins of cities and the corpses of their victims. So, I mean, Churchill's, his motivation was solely to stop the spread of Bolshevism. At one point, he even wanted to reform the German army to like act as a bulwark against the expansion of Bolshevism. Kind of like funding Nazis after World War II to stamp out left but just on this topic of, you know, because I don't want to ever lose sight of the material aspect of imperialism, but um, there's another titan of industry's thoughts on the situation that I was able to pick up from that source from R.D. McCarter, who is the president of Westinghouse and an associate of future president Herbert Hoover. But he considered intervention, quote, absolutely necessary as a prerequisite for building grain elevators, refrigerator plants and cars, railway improvements and new railways. So very pragmatic and open in what he's saying that this is needed to preserve these things because Westinghouse, along with the likes of General Electric, AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph Company at the time, all had operations and plants in Russia. 
And if you think folks like this wouldn't have had the ear of Wilson and the state apparatus, then, you know, I have a bridge to sell you. So yeah. they were definitely involved in crafting policy here. That's how it's always been. But, you know, like I said, I think we could go on forever pulling quotes and listing numbers, but I just don't think it's necessary to do that kind of ad nauseum. With all that in mind, I think it is worth reading a passage directly from that aid memoir, which was the document that Wilson issued kind of sanctioning U.S. intervention. So this is a little bit long, but I think it's important. So, quote, he says, It is the clear and fixed judgment of the government of the United States arrived at after repeated and very searching reconsiderations of the whole situation in Russia. That military intervention there would add to the present sad confusion in Russia rather than cure it, injure her rather than help her, and that it would be of no advantage in the prosecution of our main design to win the war against Germany. It cannot, therefore, take part in such intervention or sanction it in principle. Military action is admissible in Russia as the government of the United States sees the circumstances only to help the Czechoslovaks consolidate their forces and get into successful cooperation with their Slavic kinsmen and steady any efforts at self-government or self-defense in which the Russians themselves may be willing to accept assistance. I mean, given the context and background here, I think this should raise a few questions for us, right? As we kind of said, the Legion was functionally at war with the Red Army, and the Legion interests and the interests of the Whites were kind of aligning for that reason at that time. So how can any involvement be neutral from that perspective? Which Slavic kinsmen is he talking about? Because the Reds and Whites were, you know, Slavic kinsmen of the Czechoslovaks, right? So which ones yeah. is he talking about? Who is going to need help with self-government and self-defense in the context of a civil war? It was really funny when, because I remember reading that statement, and it goes on a little further. And the way that they end it, I remember was like the most diplomatic, but also the most just mask off way of saying like, look, this is not in our interest economically or politically. We don't really want to do this, so we're just not going to do it. And we also think it's kind of unwise just in general to even bother intervening here. But also, we don't want to like tell all these other countries that are intervening militarily that you're doing it wrong. We're just saying we're not doing that and we don't think it's a good idea. But you guys do you. Like, that's literally how they were saying it in the most flowery language. And it was hilarious to listen to. Yeah. He also says in that statement, recent developments have made it evident that this is all in the interest of what the Russian people themselves desire. And the government of the United States is glad to contribute the small force at its disposal for that purpose. But it does yield judgment to the Supreme Command in the matter of establishing a small force at Murmansk, which is on the other side of Russia more like the Finland region up there. But basically, yeah, we're going to send some things here. We'll yield to the Supreme Command, but we're doing this out of the kindness of our hearts. It's just to help you poor Russians who are grasping for self-determination. Fuck off. But, um, <laughs> you know, Graves, he adds his emphasis here that by his reading, he was not to interfere other than on the basis of protecting the railway. And he does stick to that line. I mean, again, I think we should be critical of him for not recognizing that that was an inherently political motivated action, but that's how he read it. So, But again, America was not, as we've said multiple times, the only participant in this adventure. Britain, France, Japan, among other minor players, all had significant presence in Siberia at the time. Even the Canadians made it up there. In fact, it can be reasonably claimed that they, along with American capital interests, pressured America into joining this intervention. I think, however hesitant he may have been, Wilson, kind of like his hesitancy to enter the war in spite of America's neutral financial support and trade for Britain and France against Germany before, just needed a cover for the intervention, and the Legion provided that. 
In any case, they were all unified in the overarching goal of defeating the Central Powers, but they had other sometimes conflicting motivations as well. According to Graves, France viewed Brest-Litovsk as treasonous and became the implacable enemy of the Soviets. Britain and Tsarist Russia had historically had a contentious imperial relationship, but I think Britain was far more terrified of a socialist power rising in Russia and reason that the Bolsheviks would be an impediment to their material aspirations, as we were kind of talking about. But Graves cited in particular, and Steve, you'll like this, Britain's fear of socialist ideas reaching India. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, well, anywhere. They just <laughs> they don't want socialism reaching India or South Africa or... Anywhere else they had their fingers. I just thought it was like interesting that he pointed that out because, you know, we've talked about so many times on our stuff about like how India was the crown jewel, right? Yeah. I mean, this is just, is that from 1918? So this is like just before Amrit Star as well. Yep. So there's already, you know, movement in India for independence and, and different things. So they don't want any other influences there. Right. Also, just to kind of round that out, Japan, for its part, did spy an opportunity to potentially expand into mainland Asia and claim at least some of the vast material wealth of Siberia for its own. In any case, with his instructions received on July 17th, Graves took off from America, finally reaching Vladivostok on September 1st, 1918, and was able to begin assessing the situation on the ground. American troops were already in place since August under a temporary command, along with British and French detachments, mostly leadership, but a large Japanese army. So Graves was in pretty short order disabused of the notion that the Allied intervention was some neutral endeavor to benevolently assist the Czechs and secure peace. The Legion had fully secured Vladivostok, as we said, and much of the railway besides, and Graves was able to piece together the conclusion that by May of 1918, the idea of transporting the Czechs into the Western Front had essentially been discarded. That whole concept of trekking them across America and onto the Western Front was a dead letter. Anyway, he reasoned that they were there to continue destabilization in Russia's east with the hopes of potentially reestablishing the Eastern Front and or being utilized as cover for explicitly anti-Bolshevik action. Furthermore, reports from one Colonel Emerson who had kind of been sent on ahead of Graves to secure transportation and, you know, generate early preliminary reports for him had indicated emphatically that the Czechs had in fact been the main aggressors against the Soviets and the Soviet representatives that he had met with were working still to accommodate their departure. They just wanted them out of Russia. And he was also confronted by the expectation of Allied leadership that he and his troops were there to fight Bolshevism, which went directly against the orders he received as he read them. He was later to find out that the seeds for this expectation were sown in part by Consul General E.H. Harris with the U.S. State Department. Harris had been in Siberia for some time prior, and Graves saw it had been setting the expectation both among the people of Russia and Allied forces alike that American troops were on their way to start fighting and like directly intervening. So Graves was forced, kind of like we were talking about with Churchill and Lord George, he was kind of forced to conclude that the State Department and War Department were working at cross-purposes. But anyway, he would soon come to the conclusion that the Allies in the State Department, as he saw it, had come to an understanding that the one great purpose of the intervention was to fight Bolshevism, and that's a quote from him. And they were going to do it by whatever means necessary. He was continuously pushed by the likes of General Knox, the commander of the British forces and the Japanese command, to go beyond guarding the railway and begin explicitly interfering in Russian affairs. But to his credit, he resisted. And his resistance seemed to grow stiffer as he was gradually introduced to the main players on the side of the white Russians that the Allies were supporting. As you can imagine, Mike, and as you said earlier, the Allies ended up supporting some of the worst scum on the planet in this proxy war. These included the Cossack Adamans Grigory Semyonov and Ivan Kalmakov, among others that we'll probably mention in part two, 
who would eventually come under the umbrella of Kolchak's White Russian Army, but were, according to Graves, funded in large part by Japan at the time and supported in action by England and France as well. In Semyonov and Kalmakov's eyes, any Siberian peasant who was not actively fighting against Bolsheviks must have been, in fact, a Bolshevik, and they were treated accordingly. Of Kalmakov, Graves states, quote, He was the worst scoundrel I ever saw or heard of, and he was only different from Semyonov in that he murdered with his own hands, whereas Semyonov ordered others to kill for him. Yeah, I was thinking when you had finished that last paragraph, when you were saying that Graves was finally recognizing that the State Department and War Department were working at cross-purposes with each other. It's like, what is that quote? It's like something about a person being unable to recognize a contradiction when their salary depends on it, basically. Yeah, no, I think that's part of it. And like, I don't know, you know, reading the narrative is like, him getting to this realization because like he resisted it for so long. I think he tells in one part how after all this was over and he returned home, he was actually followed by agents of the state department. They were spying on him. Like, I don't know, I guess the red scare craze started already just because like he was following orders as he read them. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that's a big part of it too. And like, aside from his salary, depending on it, I think he was just I mean, he still spoke glowingly of like Wilson and everything like that. Like he always provided cover for Wilson throughout this stuff. I think he was still bought into this idea that, you know, someone like Wilson as the president really had the best interests of people in mind and bought into this idea that liberal democracy was best for everyone. Yeah. But anyway, so let's just briefly summarize the state of Siberia prior to the armistice in November of 1918. Again, the Czechs had, for all intents and purposes, secured safe passage to Vladivostok on their own, had been the aggressors against the Bolsheviks, and in fact, their departure was not really being resisted by the Red Army at all. Japan had placed troops deep into Siberia at various points along the railway and was materially supporting in the depraved enforcers of the White Russians. Britain and France continued to advocate for more forceful anti-Bolshevik intervention, as did the representatives of the State Department. The U.S. forces actually did engage in some early small-time combat, but this was sanctioned by Graves on the basis that the engagement was primarily against German and Austrian prisoners of war that had been released. And despite Graves' resistance to act beyond his interpretation of orders, the Russian people on the ground that were beginning to see the development of a white terror did not really care to distinguish between the different allies, seeing their actions ultimately as a unified front. And more and more, the allies would be seen to be upholding a situation which ensured the white army and the allies controlled the jugular vein of Siberia, the railway, and enabling murderous bands of Cossacks. Cool stuff. Yeah, right. Um, so again, the armistice was signed on November 11th, which ended World War I, and Grave states that this event, quote, changed materially the duties of American troops and brought other causes of discord between himself and the other allies. He had received word from the State Department that Consul General Harris would be authorized to give aid and advice to local governments. At this point, the local governments along the railway were controlled by the white Russians. So again, very neutral of the State Department. Then, between November 18th and 19th, with the assistance of General Knox and the British, Admiral Kolchak and his forces engineered a coup d'etat of whatever semblance of government, um, renegade government, was in place in Siberia, and he was declared the supreme ruler of the fake Russian state. But at that point, Kolchak began kind of consolidating the reactionary forces, surrounding himself with the likes of Semyonov and Kalmakov, and began enlisting quote-unquote peasants for his counter-revolutionary army. As Graves writes, the peasants that would not, quote, take up arms and offer their lives to put the Tsarists back in power were kicked, beaten with knouts, and murdered in cold blood by the thousands, and then the world called them Bolsheviks. His report is absolutely, like, riddled with accounts of entire villages being sacked, women raped, and massacres at the slightest notion of a Bolshevik presence. 
In a damning statement, Graves writes, quote, There were horrible murders committed, but they were not committed by the Bolsheviks as the world believes. I am well on the side of safety when I say that the anti-Bolsheviks killed 100 people in eastern Siberia to every one killed by the Bolsheviks. I had to look up what a knout was when you said they were beaten with knouts. Right? Yeah, it's like a heavy, so Wikipedia just says, a knout is a heavy scourge-like multiple whip. I also have to look up scourge because I thought, I thought scourge was like a plague. I don't know. Anyway, um, usually made of a series of rawhide thongs attached to a long handle, sometimes with metal wire or hooks incorporated. So nice. Now I want to see what scourge is. Sorry. Scourge is a whip or a lash, especially a multi-thong type used to inflict severe corporal punishment or self-mortification, usually made of leather. But um, yeah, you guys should look up K-N-O-U-T and out and then see the uh, pictures on Wikipedia of what people look like after they've been hit with one of these, because it's pretty bad. Yep. And this was the people we were supporting doing this. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. I just love that line of, he says, at least in eastern Siberia, the anti-Bolsheviks killed 100 people for every one that was killed by the Bolsheviks. Makes a lot of sense when it's a class war, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, that one person was a fucking gulag. But anyway, I can give like, you know, multiple accounts and it gets kind of graphic, but there's one report, which I'll say just to kind of give some evidence for his claim here. He describes one scene where he's essentially approached by this grieving woman to investigate this murder that had happened in the village, right? So he sends one of his officers to go in and take a look. And essentially he finds a scene of bodies strung up in like this barn hanging, clearly evidence of beatings that happened before he saw like burns on the skin caused by like boiling water. And he saw multiple gunshot wounds, like basically up and down the bodies of these would be Bolsheviks. You know, they were probably just peasants. So that's the kind of shit that he uh, was observing there and that the white Russians were doing. And, you know, as he witnessed and was made aware of these atrocities, he couldn't help but come to the conclusion that Kolchak could never be a legitimate ruler of the Russian people. You know, he continues to resist overtures to support this fake state more forcefully. And by late 1919, they, or early 1919, sorry, they had essentially entirely replaced the Czech Legion on the front. Side note, despite the Czechs' anti-Bolshevism, they too were growing kind of leery of the whites given the terror and atrocities witnessed. But Commander Graves took up his obligation and he reported back on the situation on the ground and the activities of the American troops back to Washington. And in what I imagine was a great surprise to him, given his conviction that he was following his orders, he began to be attacked on all sides, including by the American press for perceived pro-Bolshevism. This was on top of the inherently anti-Semitic claims made by the Kolchak forces that the detachment sent to Siberia of Americans was composed of Russian Jews from New York perpetuating the disgusting trope that Bolshevism was an evil Jewish conspiracy. Luckily for the rest of the world, you know, that's never going to come up again, is it? I mean, I fucking love that it's simultaneously a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world and also communists hate Jews and are just as bad as fascists. It's like, make up your fucking minds like anti-communists. Like, It's just, you know, it, it's a tired point, but it's just so fucking easy and lazy to be an anti-communist, isn't it? Very much. Very you can much. say whatever you want. People will nod along like fucking robots. Oh, my God. This is actually what they talked about on uh, that deprogram episode I mentioned earlier when they were talking about how they would do it if they were to go and be far-right reactionaries just to be just a grift to make money. And yeah. they were like, it is one of those things like it would be very easy to just reinforce all the bullshit people have been fed their entire lives and all the propaganda they've passively absorbed and just go online and say like, hey, you know, commies, no food, commies starve all the time. 
commies, no freedom, no guns. Like, it's just like, if you really want to be that dumb, just tell your soul, you can do it. And you can find this shit online. I mean, it's a little bit harder to find, but you know, like I said, I like this so much. I'll repeat myself because this is an American general, like telling you all this, right? Who, again, as we've said, is ideologically committed to the American project. He's not like some quote unquote anti-American, right? Like, like what would get thrown at us. I am an anti-American. I'm just (laughs) not anti-American people, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, to further Graves' exasperation, he received back a cable from Washington in response to all of his reports which were coming back, which expressed that the War Department would prefer to receive its information from the State Department representatives on the ground and not him. So that meant information coming from Council General Harris, who was by the day becoming more openly pro-Kolchak and walking right in step with General Knox and the Japanese. So it suddenly seemed to him that maybe not everybody in the War Department was working at cross purposes with the state. Outside note, I actually like that they call it War Department because that's much more honest than Department of Defense or whatever the fuck we call it now. Oh, yeah. I mean, literally 1984. (laughs) Yeah. So he consistently highlights in particular that the Japanese Army's overt support for Kolchak and the roving bands of Cossacks, led by Semyonov and Kalmakov, you know, because of their interests in Siberia. So Japan, by this point, was well on their way to establishing their own, you know, fascistic empire, having recently annexed Korea in 1910. So in many ways, and this is just another side note that also kind of set the stage for the situation in front of us today, because the origins of the communists in Korea were basically guerrilla fighters against the Japanese occupation. But again, that's probably a, a different episode entirely. But in any case, I want to point out that I think Graves rightly criticizes atrocities aided and abetted by Japan as they funneled money to the whites, but also his hypocrisy in failing to recognize America as an imperial power in its own right. He did, to his credit, recognize that to the people of Russia, it did not matter much to what degree the whites in Siberia were being supported by a given nation, because he writes, quote, there was great resentment against Japan by the peasants of eastern Siberia because everyone knew these atrocities were committed by Russians in their pay and under their protection. And the U.S. was not and should not have been entirely free from the harsh feeling of the people for these terrible cruelties committed by Japanese hirelings. As the United States had let it be known throughout the world that she had invited Japan in sending troops to Siberia. And despite reports to Washington, not one word of protest was ever made to Japan for these acts. So I hope this kind of sets the scene for the rise of Kolchak to power and kind of frames what's going on in the region at the time. It's completely destabilized by violence, supported by varying degrees by the different allied powers. But to that statement above, that degree mattered not a red fucking cent to the people of Siberia who are being slaughtered by reactionaries. And with all this in the background, we'll come to March 1919 and the signing of the railroad agreement. And I think that's where we'll pick up for hopefully part two. So maybe now we can just bullshit about uh, all this a little bit more. (laughs) I mean, yeah, so I messaged you because, like I was saying, I just wanted to make sure that this was the same time period that Mike Duncan was talking about. And it indeed is. It's just fucking annoying that the liberal narrative is what gets out there as opposed to just, you know, facts, reality of history. And it fucking matters, though. Like, it's, it's, it's huge because, again, this is going to color the relationship between the U.S. and USSR in the future, as we said off the top. And you can already see, like, as we mentioned here, the propaganda machine going already, even against graves, even against American troops, just because, you know, he was perceived as, I guess, the right way to frame it is not anti-Bolshevik, just, again, kind of neutral as he was interpreting it. So it's just, you know, the history is important because... This mainstream understanding of the Reds were just as bad as the Whites and blah, 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 essentially, again, just plays into 
this easy acceptance of anti-communism. So that's why history fucking matters. It is always that same game that they play, right? They always have to say that, like, BLM and Antifa protesting people getting murdered by police is just as bad as police murdering people. Or the property damage is just as bad as the murder by police. Or BLM and Antifa are just as bad as the fucking fascists who are marching saying that they want to exterminate people. It's like, they always have to do the false equivalence. And like, when, even when you say, like, the ratio of people killed by the Bolsheviks versus the White Army. And it's like, yeah, who are the Bolsheviks going after? They're going after class traders. They're going after a certain class of people, which is exactly who you should be going after if you are a rational fucking person and you want to improve your society. And so they always have to do that false equivalence. And it's like, yeah, they're not going after these people because of their ideas. They're going after these people because they're fucking fascists. They're fucking hoarders of money and resources and exploiters of mass amounts of people. To equate that with people who want equality and democracy and like actual functioning systems of government, it's not the same. And they always have to do the false equivalence game. Yeah. And it just makes me think of fucking Parenti because he's so relevant to just about everything that, you know, that we talk about. There's something I can pull about from Parenti. But when he when he talks about after the revolution is criticism of liberals. Right. And he's like, and as soon as the revolution's over, two minutes later, liberals want it to be perfect. Right. They're worried about the fascist rights. Oh, do the fascists get their newspapers? Do they get their say? Like, fuck them. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, why the whites, the czarists? These are the fascists in this context. So again, I go back to say to like, pick a fucking side. <laughs> yeah. Stevie, you were pretty quiet. Did you have anything to add about like the British side of this? I mean, you know, the, the points I made about Churchill, I mean, he, he was obviously the driving force, but it's, it's interesting when you, obviously we talk about imperialism and that's what our focus is. But when you look at like who fought, you know, at the time, the British took troops from Hong Kong, from Bombay, Alfred Knox, who was like the, the major general at the time, he was born in Ulster and then he fought in India. So it's just like a who's who of where our imperial forces were at the time, all got sent there. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking about like history and everything else. And obviously, if you do some digging, you can find stuff. Right. And I, I think it's pretty obvious that Nick and I have talked about this. But, you know, I, I don't know as much history or theory as you guys do. Like my ideology and my beliefs come from mostly life experiences and just family influences and everything. And just what I think people should be. You know, I just it shouldn't be a capitalist. But, but anyway, I went to high school in the Netherlands. And when you talk about like how you learn history, you know, we were learning British history. I went to a British school. You study world history a little bit more than you probably do in the U.S., but we were studying like World War II and everything else. And we had a Russian student there uh, at our school. And, you know, we were learning that like Stalin helped us in World War II, but then he turned evil. And this guy was like, what the fuck are you talking about? This guy's a <laughs> hero. <laughs> so it's just, you know, where you learn. And, and But our teacher was so dismissive of this guy. She's just like, oh, you've just been indoctrinated. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, what the fuck? This guy grew up there. I think he knows better than we do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just think like the, the liberal mindset and I think you kind of touched on this, Nick, but, you know, you wanted to help the people of Russia. And we just think that, you know, Britain with their empire, we've talked about it a bunch of times. They just thought they were spreading liberalism and better ideals. And Americans just think we're bringing freedom to all these people. I mean, democratically elected socialist governments, well, there needs to be a regime change. You know, people just you just get brainwashed if you're not willing to learn and, and spend some time looking at things. It's just easy to just kind of follow the status quo. Yeah, no. And it, but it goes back to one other point that I wanted to make that kind of, again, is another repeating trend is that 
as Graves was kind of talking about, these peasants and things like that are getting slaughtered. And, you know, a lot of that stuff was happening in terms of like the revolution was really centered around the Western part of Russia. So you're talking about a section of this huge country that would have been very isolated from, you know, a lot of the political action of the country at the time, right? So like from an ideological perspective, they were probably not that much engaged, right? But they ended up being pushed into the arms of the Bolsheviks in a lot of ways, you know what I mean? So it's almost like the Allied support for this intervention and what they did on the ground ended up having the opposite effect in terms of the people of Russia. And I think we see that a lot in terms of things playing out, not necessarily in the way that the Allies would want it to on the ground. No, I think at the end of the day, a lot of these people, you know, get their money. Sometimes they lose out and things like that. So we can't lose sight of that, that it's not always about winning a war. There's money to be made and shit like that. It's like they always fail to see, I mean, reaction is not necessarily the right word, but like the unintended consequences, I think, of what they're doing in terms of how it's affecting the people on the ground in a way that they might not want to see it go or that they definitely don't want to see it go. Like they don't understand the dialectic. Yeah. <laughs> they literally don't understand that like, I don't know. That's my latest thing now is like I just kind of workshop tweets in my head. It's like when you see right now there's massive hunger in the U.S. because of policies that the Biden administration has been pursuing, things that they've let lapse, child tax credits and things like that. And now they're just ending free school lunches on top of that. That's going to expire at the end of the month. And that's going to affect millions of families. And I don't understand how they don't see that that turns people into radicals. Like, that will radicalize people. I mean, it's going to radicalize people to the right a lot because that's just the default in America. But, like, that does have the potential to turn a lot of people into fucking Marxists when they just see the failures of neoliberal policy over and over and over again for their entire lives. It's like you're now bringing up the next generation. Like, the youngest kids are seeing Thatcher Milk Snatcher, but it's Biden. And (laughs) so, I don't know. I I don't get it. And it's like, If you want to transform these things into, like, hot takes, I could say that, like, the Democrats are doing more to advance the cause of socialism than anyone else in America right now. Because they're radicalizing a whole bunch of fucking liberals by showing them that they don't give a fuck about anybody. At least I want to believe that. I want to believe that, like, the fascists are implementing communism in the U.S. right now in a roundabout way because they're going to destabilize the U.S. so badly that China is just going to have to take over. So I just tell everybody, start learning Mandarin. That's my my troll. Jesus Christ, you know, fuck. But, you know, to that point, and this is just, again, this is a, uh, you know, just an empirical example, but I was talking to a good friend of mine. He's liberal and he listens to our podcast, so I'm not going to shit on him at all because I love him. But I was working on him for a long time, you know, in terms of just talking about socialism and things like that. And what really broke him, I think, to start thinking about it from what he told me was the fucking baby formula shortage, you know? He was like, you know, maybe something shouldn't be left up to the free market, like, you know, <laughs> infant lives. And I'm like, yeah, dude. <laughs> Radical thought. Imagine. But, but it's so crazy, you know, when you see all this going on and, you know, you said policies by the Biden administration, which is true, but it's also just a lack of doing fucking anything, right? Like yeah. psychopaths like Richard Nixon implemented things like, you know, price freezes and things That's like that. killing me. Seeing that, though. You know, that's how far right we are now. That's what our liberal party is now, to the right of fucking Richard Nixon. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just here. You know, Boris Johnson tried to stop free school lunches, I think, two years ago. And it took a Premier League footballer who was, you know, he's a young guy, Marcus Rashford. He's like the only person that spoke up against it and eventually started a movement that made Boris Johnson have to go back on that. 
so yeah, I mean, like it can take a few radicals to, to make changes, but I still think it's easier to influence stuff in, in the UK. Maybe it's be, well, Britain, maybe it's because it's a smaller country, but I also, I, I don't know that people use their platforms in this country always for the best things. So it's a bit of a shame. And the people that would get quieted or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, it's just sad that this movement to the right, it's not just happening in this country. It's happening pretty much all of Western Europe and everywhere else is unfortunately creeping that way as well. This is mostly unrelated, Steve, but maybe you happen to see it. I didn't look deeply into it. I just saw like the headline, but it was like, there was some news just revealed in England about some kind of collusion and rat fucking against Corbyn, something that we knew all along, but that like yeah. they were able to plausibly deny and it just came out. And it's like, people were just basically looking at this and saying, you know, here in the US, they're like, yeah, this is what would have happened to Bernie if he had ever gotten like elected. You know what I mean? Like they would have rat fucked him so bad. Like he would have never been able to do anything and he would have been ousted for being like a fucking anti-Semite like Corbyn, like despite being, yeah. it, they would have been able to do it. Well, I mean like, yeah, they call him an anti-Semite because he supports Palestine and he supports, you know, he's, he also gets a lot of shit in England because he supports Sinn Féin and the IRA and well, yeah, he's a socialist. Of course he does. Based. And then, um, you know, this Kira Strama, who's the head of the Labour Party now, that's kind of what they want. They want Tony Blair. 2.0 to lead the Labour Party because that's what they think is going to win elections. Yeah, I mean, the one encouraging thing is Sinn Féin's victories in, in Northern Ireland recently w was good. But yeah, I don't know. Was, I knew at the time that, you know, the Labour Party basically just colluded together to, to get rid of Corbyn. But, um, you know, it's interesting when you talk about Corbyn, you know, my family in, in England are all, well, majority are, are pretty hard left. They were all pretty big Corbyn supporters. But talking to them now, Nick and I talked about this. I don't know if that podcast got released, but they're all, very, you know, my one uncle particularly is, is pretty discouraged by the fact that all these guys you grew up with in the unions and everything now are all basically Boris supporters. And it's mostly due to racism. You know, that's just ways that the right, like you said, you know, people tend to turn right here as well. And I think that that trend is going in England now as well, which is unfortunate because in England, historically, you had a pretty educated left and that's just getting smaller and smaller. And I think a lot of that is, is because of Tony Blair bringing labor more to the center and kind of abandoning a lot of the ideals of that party. Yeah. And so like, I think to try to tie it back into this a little bit, I think that's why, like, when you look at imperialism in the, you know, imperial core of North America, aside from Mexico and, um, you know, Western Europe, you, you can't distill it all down to a class reductionist level, right? Because you have to look at the racial systems it's racialized capitalism and imperialism in a lot of ways because these structures were built both on capitalism and white supremacy, right? And I think this is where like this concept of Orientalism comes into play when you're talking about something like this, because I think there's points maybe when Russians can be viewed as white, like maybe Boris Yeltsin. But, you know, in a case like this, you get that quote from Churchill dehumanizing the Bolsheviks as, you know, like beasts, like essentially trampling through their cities and things like that. So <laughs> I think it's, it can always be weaponized against like whoever the enemy is, but it's also very much ingrained on, you know, that racial basis in the Imperial Corps. We need to like fight against that shit. Yeah. And the British just have, you know, especially back then, the superiority complex of, and, and it still exists a little bit now, just that they just think they're better than everybody else because they ruled a quarter of the globe or what, you know, the sun never set in the British empire. There were some pretty shitty quotes from that Knox as well, but we can maybe <laughs> talk about them next time. Yeah, so like for next time, we'll get more into, I guess, when like shit really starts hitting the fan and the Red Army starts coming up the, uh, the Trans-Siberian Railway. <laughs> yeah. 
that's all I picture for when you say the Trans-Siberian Railway. In my mind, I'm just picturing a bunch of locomotives with trans flag paint jobs. And it's funny to me. Yeah, you based. Well, anything else, guys? Or do you want to call it there and we can pick up next time? Sounds good to me. Sounds good. Well, Mike, do you uh, want to plug your pluggables? Yeah, I mean, just check out the Turn Left podcast. Follow me on Instagram at turnleftist.v5 at this point. And uh, all the other links for all my um, hosts and everything, it's all in Linktree, Linktree slash turnleftist. But, you know, follow us on Twitter, turnleftistpod. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to run through like all the other plugs, but yeah, just go to Linktree. And I think hopefully by the time this episode comes out, we should have our next t-shirt design out, which is uh, Trickle Down Economics. So I'll let you guys kind of uh, theorize as to what that's going to look like. <laughs> There's a guillotine involved, I'll say that. That's awesome. Nice. No, but, uh, you know, for our small contingent of listeners, if you haven't already, definitely check out Turn Leftist. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that they're the spiritual successors to Proles Pod. And I mean that in all the best ways. They're doing the, the real work on the agitprop and the education front. So, but Mike, definitely want to thank you for, uh, you know, joining us tonight. We're trying to get this thing off the ground. So uh, hopefully it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with this. Oh, yeah. On our side, I do want to shout out my comrade Levi for giving me some assistance with editing and proofreading this script. And you can find us at Intervention Pod on Instagram. And, you know, if you want to shoot us an email, we're at interventionpod at gmail.com. That's cool. it. We'll see you for part two. Nice. Can't wait. All right. Thanks, guys. See you. Thank you.